Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast. I get to talk to another friend of mine because I'm lining them all up before Stacey gets back to all of her friends. So this week we get to talk to Jakob Lehman, who I met this summer at Teatro Nuovo. He was actually Tim's roommate, who we talked to a few weeks ago. Um, his position, we just had this discussion, it's a position that existed in the musical world years ago and hasn't existed for years, and we kind of are bringing it back. We want to call it, what are we calling it? 50% musical co-director and Concert master. Concert master for well, I, I suppose yeah, <laughs> concert master and, and, and co-director would be and something that feels a bit more twenty-first century to me. Appropriate to what we did. For, so he was that with us at Teatro Nuovo for for all three of our performances. Um, he also is a conductor in his own right. He's born and raised and lives in Berlin, is all over Europe. Um, and plays violin. So I brought him on the podcast just because I fell in love with him this summer. And we haven't had anybody like this ever on our podcast, probably because it hasn't existed forever. So (laughs) welcome. Thanks for joining us on our podcast all the way over in Germany. You also are probably the furthest person we've interviewed. Yeah, I think. Pretty exciting. Because Tim was only in Canada. Yeah, Tim wasn't that far away. So welcome. How, let's start. Thanks for having me. Thanks. How did you start playing music? Did you start as a violinist? Did you start thinking that you wanted to become a conductor? Or how did you get into it? Well, the whole music thing was pretty natural to me because my family is a family of musicians, not only in my parents' generation, but also in my grandparents' generation. So um, on the side of my mom, um, there are musicians basically everywhere. So, and my parents are both musicians. My, my dad's a trombone player, plays in one of the Berlin orchestras, and my mom's a flute teacher in music school. So I was surrounded by music all my life, basically. And the whole idea of playing an instrument for a living was very natural to me. So it, it was even, you know, when I look back um, to my school days, it was strange to me that, that the parents of my school friends went to an office or something like that. That was pretty, pretty strange to me because I always, <laughs> yeah, I always knew my dad was going to rehearsals and then he played and then he, you know, he made music that, that was his life. So, um, that I started doing music was actually, um, pretty, pretty normal. I started actually playing the piano when I was four, um, mostly because my sister played it, um, she also started playing it. She's three years older than I was. And, and at age four, you, you want to do everything your, your elder siblings do. And so I um, started playing the piano and I kind of didn't mind it. I didn't really love it that much. And mm-hmm. um, I just went to the lessons and I, yeah, I didn't really practice on my own. So I, I was always kind of reluctant to work. So, um, but then I, for some reason got started with the idea of playing the violin, um, which was um, also not very far-fetched because my grandfather used to be a violinist. And so I always saw this instrument 
in you know at his place and i became sort of fascinated by it but first of all by how it looked and how it you know how it functioned not so much the sound but then i um yeah i got this whole idea and i started playing the violin at age seven and and took off from there basically um took lessons first with a colleague of my dad's and then at the music school and then i went to what we call in german music gymnasium which is a kind of music college which is like a normal college but you get music lessons in the afternoon and i um had a great teacher there and i uh yeah it was pretty clear to me that this would be my job my profession eventually so i know you mostly as a like what did a period style because that's what we did at Tatra Novo. Is that your focus is period music or do you, do you do all kinds of music or do you, as a musician, do you guys kind of find focuses or is it just whatever comes your way? Um, I, this, this whole idea of period performance was kind of introduced to me also by my teacher, by my violin teacher. Um, and I got really fascinated by the sound world and by the idea of, um, in a way, going back in time and, and, and finding a way to, um, yeah, build a bridge between our time and, and, and long gone times in a way. So, um, this whole idea was really interesting to me that I started with, um, just studying it myself and playing on a Baroque violin and playing gut strings and everything like that. And, and I quickly, um, got into a youth orchestra, youth Baroque orchestra, which, which is run in Germany by, um, one of the specialist um, groups for that. And I was always fascinated by this way of doing it, by kind of studying the sources, looking at old treatises and looking at old instrumental schools and, and trying to find out a way to, to bring this alive. And, but in a way, I was always keen on doing everything. And, and to this day, I don't really regard myself as being predominantly a period player. I think I just, I'm just, kind of raised in this way of approaching music and um that's why i approach it the way i do but i don't really think it's it's the only way of doing it i think as long as you have a clear idea about what you do it has to be an authentic performance anyhow but uh, i just like studying old sources and like we did at teatro nuovo i'm just rediscovering a repertoire um through the use of of the appropriate instruments and playing techniques and also the seating plans and everything like that and looking at manuscripts and i think every period and every style has its own yeah language its its own vocabulary and we really need to know much about we need to know enough about this vocabulary and about this language to bring it alive in a in a yeah coherent way to to engage the audience so I'm, yeah, I'm also keen on doing all this stuff on modern instruments and not on period instruments only. So it's, um, basically it's a mix. It's a mix. Like everything in my life is a mix. <laughs> you like to do everything, just like the rest of the people we talk to. <laughs> Very <different>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. So there's two things that I, I love that you kind of like segued perfectly for me. It's because we know each other. Uh, I did want to talk about what we did at Teatro Nuovo because you were so instrumental in 
I believe the <laughs> instrumental. Uh, Good job, Twist. <laughs> Thanks. In the, <laughs> in the physical uh, plan and setup that you talked about, but also this whole idea, again, Stacey and I are not necessarily musicians. Well, we're musicians, we're not instrumentalists. I know we've had this discussion multiple times. We're musicians, not instrumentalists. Of like period instruments and you mentioned the gut strings and actually working on a Baroque violin. That's something that I had never even heard of before this summer. Cause to me, a violin was a violin, you know, I never thought about the differences. So can you talk a bit about that, both the seating plan that we did this summer and why it was so, I want to say new and different, but in a way that was like what they did originally, but new to the American audience. And just this whole idea of how instruments as a whole have changed over the years. Um, I think I go I go in reverse order. I start with the instruments and okay. the whole concept of period performance because I think it's 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 important to know the the kind of yeah the, the the ground level ideas about that because I I think one of the one of the main things about this whole development which started I think in the 1960s and 70s uh, with um, mostly people like um, Nicolas Anoncourt and Gustav Leonard who really said okay, is the, is the musical vocabulary and the actual gear, the actual instruments we use, is that appropriate for the music we want to perform? So they started off looking at um, sources for mostly Baroque music, for Bach, Handel, and, and early composers like that. And they, they started rediscovering a whole new sound world. For example, taking the Taking the example of um, the piano, a piano is um, in the form we know today an invention of basically the second half of the 18th century, but became, you know, came in use only in the middle of the 19th, late 19th century. So um, there were keyboard instruments before that, but a whole different, you know, sort of. So the, the strings were not. The strings were plucked and not uh, no what pierced is that the word the the strings were pierced when you put the key down so all this idea about old instruments is um reviving sound worlds which were um known by the composer so basically a composer only composes for what he knows that's that's pretty basic in the in in everything before let's say the beginning of the 20th century, a composer is mostly a very practical person. He just, he or she has to write for the forces, the instruments, the singers that are available and talking about, jumping a bit back and forth, talking about someone like Rossini who worked with singers all his life, he knew exactly what they could do. So he, he wrote only what was practical to perform. And the idea of having the instruments a composer knew and used is pretty logic to me at least, um, because if a composer wants to compose a piece for orchestra, he has to know in his head, he has to hear it in his head and has to know how the instruments works, uh, work in, in terms of balance, in, term of, in terms of um, blending of the sound, in terms of characteristics and, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, a composer who knew a violin with gut strings 
composed differently from a composer that knows violin with metal strings. So um, this whole idea of bringing back the the status quo of the point in a composer's life where he composed a piece is the the basic idea about period performance. So um, finding a way of getting nearer to the composer's ideas, but also the composer's um, yeah, what the composer dealt with in his lifetime. And that means that looking backwards, um, all the instruments changed. Um, for example, the violin had, you know, this one of the latest changes was um, the change from using gut strings. So actually strings made from guts, from sheep or, or mm -hmm. cow's guts, um, to using metal strings because um, kind of concert halls grew bigger and music had to be louder and with all the new kind of playing techniques developed in the 20th century it became necessary that the strings have a bigger kind of projection and a, and a high attention to, to to fill bigger halls um but until the very you know the the first half of the 20th century gut strings were the, the norm and so every composer who composed for a violin in the 19th century composed basically for gut strings and to find the sound for that period requires playing on gut strings for example mm -hmm. and so that was um that was the, the the chief idea behind teatro novo because in this repertoire um bel canto um rossini donizetti bellini this has not been done very often because people don't necessarily regard this music as how shall I put it, worth a critical evaluation. So it's mostly people still today think, oh, this is only a, uh, this is only about the singers. The singers are up on the stage doing crazy stuff and the orchestra is just oompa oompa um, along. Yeah. But, um, but that's actually not the case because I think um, all these composers were absolutely, you know, absolutely masterful in what they did. So... Um, I think to re-evaluate also the orchestral side of this repertoire is very, very important for our general knowledge of this repertoire. And I think even someone like like you, Cindy, who is not the biggest fan of this repertoire, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of, converting. I'm going to get there someday. <laughs> yeah, and I think it, we we kind of made it easy for you. I um, think that's it. I didn't know. I didn't know the history of it, and as you said, the way it's kind of perceived in the you know world is different than than other 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 genres are so yeah. learning this much about it this summer really made me appreciate it so much more in the work that went into it and you know hearing it on the period pieces and being able to work with the orchestra as much as I actually did which never mm. happens in the stage manager's world you yeah. know really made me appreciate it so much more yeah, and I mean, having the right instrument and, and reading about it all and looking at the autographs of the composer and trying to decipher what he actually meant and which playing techniques were normal at the time and which bows the violinist used and everything like that is also closely connected in my um, experience and in my perception of this whole thing about um, how orchestras actually sat and how orchestras were actually arranged in a pit or on a concert platform. For example, we talk about symphony orchestras today and we talk about seating plans of symphony orchestras. But for most of the 19th century and, and until the beginning of the 20th century, um, 
actually symphony orchestras never really sat. They stood up. They they played standing up. So that's that's one of the things. So um, a pit is of course a different thing because you can't stand through a three-hour opera. But um, this whole idea of finding the right um, distribution of the orchestra in order to make the old instruments work in the way um, they might have done back in the day was also one of the chief um, yeah, ideas behind this. And I'm quite happy that Will was um, open to it because it required a whole new way of thinking about an orchestra. Because first of all, what we did at Teatro Novo was kind of eliminating the stand-up conductor. Yeah. Why is that? Because until the the second, right in the second half of the 19th century, there was no stand-up conductor in Italian opera. People were not conducting in the way we, we know it today from opera. And, and that differed greatly. For example, uh, Karl Maria von Weber, the um, very famous German composer and conductor and also orchestral um, innovator, he started conducting in 1826. So I would say Italy was 30, 40 years behind that um, um, idea. So uh, if you eliminate the conductor who normally generates the traffic between stage and, and pit, you have to find a way in, in which um, this contact gets established um, without having someone kind of driving the bus, as, as Jennifer Rowley put it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that requires, um, yeah, visual, but also um, oral contact between the, between the different layers of, of the performance. And so um, we looked at different stage plans and there's just, I just found it um, now, I, I thought, this is the book which um, we were using. It's it's a kind of it's really it's nerd stuff. It's called um, orchestral performance practices in the nineteenth century: size, proportions, and seating by Daniel J. Curry, which was actually I think it's um um uh, how do you call this a doctoral thesis? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, pub published already in the eighties, and this is my go-to book for looking at stuff. So this is an excellent um, starting point for, for research in any way. And so I looked there and I looked um, for, yeah, Italian opera seating plans. And I found several and they're all similar in a way. Um, we decided to go for some, um, for a plan that was in use in Naples in 1816 because Rossini was, of course, music director in Naples at that time. This might have been something that was close to his intentions. And the principal idea about this plan was that everyone could see everyone, <laughs> which which sounds pretty simple, but which actually was the whole point. So um, we have violins, for example, arranged. It's in a way um, diagonally to the audience. Um, oh no, how do you call this? Yes. It's not not looking well, in. Well, their the shoulders are kind of to the audience, yes, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, um, but that's a pretty modern way of, of, of putting violins um, because in the 18th and 19th centuries, violins were always sitting in like rows, long lines. And in Italy at that time, for example, the first violins were all sitting in one really long line with the backs to the audience. 
of course, looking on stage, seeing the stage because there was no conductor um, helping them to 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 um, stay in touch with the singers. So all the first violins can see each other, but they also can see on stage. And in a similar way, we had this um, we had this way. Maybe you can you can attach a link to this to this image because it's online. I could I could just send you a link. Yeah. And you can put it in the podcast notes or something. The image you have, but also I I still have my like pit map of how we actually set ours up, which would be cool to put the two yeah. together to yeah. show. Yeah, I think it's, it's like what we did to to make everyone actually getting a picture in their mind because it's pretty theoretical what we talk about. Um, but actually, um, to make a long story short, we tried this out, and um, we actually were all um, we were all waiting for it to not work because it was yeah. so strange and so um so different to what we are used today even in in circles of period performance um but we were all really surprised that it actually worked pretty well and that the 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 benefits of seeing each other and and having the chance to relate to each other in this way was actually much much bigger than any disadvantage and I know that that um, everyone enjoyed it, for example, in the orchestra. Everyone was like, oh, this is cool. This is something new. Also something that you don't really have often in working with orchestras. Everyone is kind of uh, often quite reluctant to change the way that they have been doing it for years. So um, mm -hmm. I was actually really amazed by the amount of... Um, yeah, readiness to to go crazy about that. Um, and so uh, I think that was one of the main aspects of of our um, success in this season that that we were all ready to embrace these strange new ways of playing and and seating and hearing each other. So um, it's funny because I was. I was on the not on the phone with Will, but but we were exchanging emails, and he was like, "Can you dig more into these orchestral seating plans? Maybe we can have different ones next year, and we can see if we if we get a change, and maybe we can also show the audience differences between like something like eighteen ten and eighteen twenty, what changed. So so also for wow. ourselves to see. Um, so I'm I'm starting to dig a bit again. Um, also of course for other projects I'm doing because I'm always um, looking into this to to find um to find a starting point for for yeah for for research and and stuff so i one of my favorite moments this summer was it must it was the first week when you guys had just arrived and we just had the violins there we we were over in like pepsico and i brought a cd map to our our uh, the stagehands who were setting it up and they just looked at me like they were crazy. And they were like, this is not how orchestras go. And I was like, I know, just work with me. And they're like, why are you doing this? And I was like, follow the arrows. And I put little arrows on my seating map and like, they're like, so they're backs to the audience. It was a really weird thing for them. So like I had them set up everything and all of our strings arrive and we sit down and we play. And because uh, it was Jonathan who was in rehearsal that day, I believe. Mm -hmm. but because Jonathan's at the uh, Forte piano and you were playing I forget who jumped up first, but I was in the house and one of you guys jumped up first and like ran to the house and so stopped playing your instrument. And then 
20 seconds later, the other one jumped up and left. And then so both of you guys were gone, which in theory are the two guys who are leading the orchestra. And the strings just like kept playing the entire time. They like didn't even skip a beat. And both both of you are out in the house with me. And, and all three of us just had these like huge smiles on our faces because it was such an awesome experience to, for me especially. So I started on stage and I kept walking back and forth because in a traditional orchestra setup, as you mentioned, like the strings are on one side, horns are on the other side. So for a perform for a singer on stage, if you're standing, you know, stage right, you'll hear the piece differently than if you're standing on stage left. And that's kind of what I was concerned about this day. So I kept walking back and forth. And it's the first time I've ever heard like an orchestra and surround sound on stage before because of the way we split it up. No matter where I stood, you heard the bass just the same on stage right as you went on stage left. So yeah, and I think that that that's one of the main ideas about this this concept and about this way of of putting an orchestra in the pit. Opera in the nineteenth century, especially in Italy, was the biggest industry you would ever you could ever imagine. So mm -hmm. they had to find a way which um which made it easy for everyone because they produced a a grueling number a number of new pieces every season. So they they hardly had enough rehearsal time for any piece. So they had to find a way in which everything worked pretty quickly also for the singers. So if a singer enters stage left and goes to stage right, he, he cannot kind of adjust every time he, he, he makes a step into one direction to the sound he or she mm -hmm. hears. And especially since the piece would have been pretty new to him or her, um, that would have been a big advantage of, of um, yeah, of, of just being able to, to follow up yeah it was and i think the singers felt the same way that they were nervous but the first time they went on stage and actually heard everybody yeah. together and that was another huge advantage i thought for us is we at caramore we did bel canto at caramore the same that i think most traditional operas at least in the united states work you know you work with the singers work with the singers with a piano and then you have like two chances with an orchestra but mm. at Novo this year we brought the orchestra in starting three weeks early, four weeks early, the strings came four weeks. And we just kept like every week, we just kept adding on people until, I don't know, final dress. I think we had everybody, but then we actually had a chance for the orchestra to work together in their sections and to work together as a whole mm. and then to work together with the performers. And I think overall, that was something that I've never experienced. Every singer I've worked with has never experienced. And I think most orchestra members I talked to were saying how wonderful it was because then they actually got to like listen to performers and yeah. interact with the performers. There's this great moment. I don't remember which production it was. Which one had the solo? There was like a horn solo with Kristen or something. And instead of talking through the maestro, the, the singer on stage just talked directly to Kristen. Yeah. And yeah. they interacted and decided, you know, how fast they wanted to go or what, how they wanted to communicate with each other on stage. But then the, cause the orchestra was, we raised them up. So they were actually could see the level of the stage. Yeah. So it was yeah. different, but everybody just kind of went with it. So it was pretty awesome to, to experience. Yeah. And I think this also, this also comes from just going back to what people did in that time, because they played so many pieces and, and they, they, the players and, the, the singers and everyone, they knew each other so well. For example, again, taking this example of um, Rossini in Naples, he always composed for the same crew. The singers were all the same uh, over the period of, of eight years. I mean, of 
course, there were changes, but still the crew was the same and also the orchestra was pretty much the same. So they all knew each other. And I think that's so also something that we wanted to recreate, that this mutual element of trust mm-hmm. and even sometimes not having to think about it, just going on stage and singing because you know that these guys in the pit will catch you. Um, that's, I think, also a very historical idea, if you if you want, because everyone mm-hmm. was in Naples and they all knew each other and and everything was connected and and um so this is the whole idea and I think <laughs> I mean for example the director of the theater in Naples um was married or the lover of the soprano first and then she became the lover of Rossini so it was this whole kind of shifting around also in personal <laughs> personal life um and so um I think they all knew each other quite well <laughs> in one way or another and so um the whole yeah the whole communication in the musical way was was easy yeah it was it was an awesome thing to experience this summer so why if it was so amazing and you could hear the same thing everywhere why did we switch to what now is considered the normal pit and orchestra layout uh, well, because, um, first of all, this pit plan works perfectly and for the, for the music we perform, but as music changed over the years and as also taste changed over the years, it became necessary that instruments were arranged in a different way. So for example, all these bel canto operas, they have a comparatively light instrumentation. So, um, it's it's quite easy to have a good balance between pit and stage. But if you go later in the 19th century um, and instruments changed too, instruments became louder, halls became bigger, um, singers became different, and of course, just musical tastes uh, changed. There was um, the need to adapt to that. So this stage, uh, this pit plan we used for Rossini could never ever work with Wagner, for example, because the orchestra is just, and the music is completely different. It's it's much louder and it's it's much more instruments. So, for example, talking about Wagner, he also had this idea of having a covered pit, and this exists to this day in Bayreuth, for example, um, where the, mm. the pit is actually covered and and arranged in a way that it actually goes down in steps to have the right balance. And no one ever complains about the orchestra being too loud in Bayreuth, but everyone complains about the orchestra being allowed everywhere else in the world. So um, that's also this idea of um, finding the right way of doing it for the right piece and for the right style. And so I think um, I could even imagine having some sort of shifting around and 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 um, experimenting in a normal symphony, uh, not bullshit, not symphony orchestra, of course not, but <laughs> and um, um, if you go to if you go to the opera and you and you have Mozart the one night and Rossini the next night and Wagner the third night, um, I think we could think of doing it in a different way. I mean, and and also keeping the keeping the the approach and and the the spirit fresh in a way to to. To discover music anew, and also symphony orchestras. I mean, symphony orchestras are much, um, m- maybe more keen to experiment these days than than opera orchestras because they normally have 
much more time at their hand and much more uh, time to really rehearse properly. So um, I also know that that conductors who have worked in period performance um, for years and that go to modern orchestras now get these ideas across and also have the orchestras play in a different way. So I could imagine it could work in an opera house as well if we have um, if if everyone wants to make it work. Yeah, true. Because people would be hearing things differently, and that's not what they're used to. Like you said, most people don't want to change. They've been doing it this way for years. Yeah, yeah, but but maybe if you if you get kind of accustomed also to being flexible, that I I imagine it, if I was the, the the director of an opera house, I would just give it a try and see how musicians feel at the end of the first year or something like that. So um, I think we, I think we, we underestimate the, um, the benefits of, um, how shall I put it? The benefits of being challenged um, mm -hmm. also for, for the sake of your own working ethos. I think if people come to, to a rehearsal and it's been like that for the last 20 years, um, that it's, that's one way. But if they come to a rehearsal and they know, okay, today I will sit completely different to what I had yesterday, maybe that's also keeping the joy of your job alive or something like that. I don't know. I mean, it, it, might, it might be my, my idea of, of working because I'm freelancing and the two of you are the same. I mean, we we cherish the change and maybe not everyone yeah. is like that, but I could imagine, um, I could imagine that this would be an interesting experiment. I think like For an actual, yeah. Yeah. When Sydney and I yeah. were in choir, we usually stood in our own sections, but occasionally he would switch us up and have everybody just mix up so that we could hear better what the other uh, groups were doing, or he could hear better, a mixture without just altos on one side, sopranos on the other side. So yeah, hmm. and that's pretty. That's that's more common in choirs actually than in orchestras those days. Um, I I played a project two weeks ago with a choir, um, a piece by Haydn, uh, the seasons, and the chorus didn't really fit onto the stage in the second concert, so they just had to experiment in this in the how they stood. So I think choirs are much more um, used to being <laughs> shuffled around than than, than orchestras. When it's easier to shuffle, on, uh, easier easier to shuffle shuffle people around because you don't have to like pick up the stand and the chair and the the light and all of their accoutrement that goes with everything to move them around. Yeah. <laughs> some some musicians have a lot of. Stuff and especially for us because we had multiple players in our orchestra, right? That were playing like different instruments, and so they, yeah, yeah, that's right. That, that's, they all have like you know all these things around them all the time that they would just like pick up and switch during a performance. So yeah, I mean, also, I mean, if you find your place um, somewhere, then you kind of make yourself at home there. You get your water bottle and you get your whatever your your pencil cases and and um your chocolate <laughs> in my case um, <laughs> uh, to just to just um, make your working space as convenient as it gets and um, your phone and whatever you need so um, and then getting shuffled around in this way is of course I know it myself also and, and you just you just kind of 
build your little nest and then someone says okay we need to move everything like 10 feet to the left it's like oh god no i just <laughs> i just installed the cookies or something like that so it's, uh, <laughs> very important things <laughs> of course i mean you can't imagine how a, you can't imagine how how a group um spirit changes if the concert master brings chocolate you oh no cindy plays that the... yes Cindy brings chocolate to crew and it makes tech week much easier. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just, it's just, um, yeah. Um, making people more comfortable, I guess, and making people more, more easygoing in a way. I mean, everyone is feeling better with chocolate. So, um, yeah. to have this kind of crazy experimenting stuff going on without chocolate, I imagine quite difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree. Had, had brought us a, I don't remember. Oh, one of our, one of our Jean's outside of campus, we went and got like a vase of flowers. And so in the middle of the orchestra pit, we had a vase of roses or something like sitting there. Oh, Lucy, Lucy brought these. Lucy brought, yeah. <laughs> Lucy brought the roses and it looked really, really beautiful. But then when we came back after a week, it smelled like, uh, I can't even begin to imagine how it, it was really horrible. And I, it was directly between the, between my desk and the, my, um, my, um, music stand and the forte piano and something it it's it, it smells like you know someone was putting a like rotting meat in the forte piano or something it, it was really horrible okay next year we'll like throw them out when we're gone for the four days we're not in the space <laughs> that's that's probably good exactly yeah i didn't even think about it but it was awesome to have flowers and chocolate floating around all the time <laughs> of course and and i mean also the daily visits to starbucks this this kind of I mean if you go with your orchestra musicians to Starbucks before the second rehearsal it's it's a, it's a really bonding experience you know it's it's really bringing people closer together buying coffee yeah. and chocolate and everything yeah. and um I think it's those little things which which can make your life so much easier especially if you are if you're doing crazy intense work like like we did yeah. I mean, also the the whole the whole concept of of hanging around, and our little um, nightly office hours in in your apartment. I mean, that's that's all connected <laughs> to the to the final result. I'm sure you heard about these, Stacey. Oh, <laughs> I even have a bunch. I have a picture of uh, that twin sent me a day or two ago of you and her and Lucy and Tim and, and who else and Are Chris. Yeah. 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 Standing in front of a refrigerator in, I guess, her apartment yeah. or something. It was our apartment, yeah. Yep. Yeah, because Jakob uh, and Tim's Refrigerator and washing machine. Don't forget and the washing machine. Very important <laughs> if you're on campus for five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were always in our apartment because their apartment had carpet in it. And so it always smelled like musty carpet. And our apartment didn't have carpet. So everybody hung out in our apartment. Oh, yeah, this... and, and in your apartment, the echo was on 24-7. And <laughs> it, was, it was kind of, um, it was like stepping into a cool church on a Sunday or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had, we had all this leftover food, which was also yes. a reason why we all hang around at your place. Because every time there was like leftover food from, from dinner, it, yeah. it ended up in your apartment. Yeah. And then, of course, everyone went there to to eat because everyone gets hungry from like 11 30 onwards <laughs> exactly uh -huh. that's like the best time to eat so yeah 
But a lot yeah, of late nights. she sent me a picture of uh, Tim shoveling brownies into his mouth. No, it's him. Oh, it's yeah, you? That was actually me. I don't know, but I, I'm not actually, if, if I'm home and I'm not working, I'm actually not really, I, I would never think of having chocolate or something. But if I'm working and it's really, it gets intense, I actually, I eat horrid amounts of chocolate. Well, and it doesn't help that we literally just had this like plate of brownies sitting on our table for like two days. Uh, this was the one thing. And then the other thing was that one of the um, a resident artist's mom um, right, right. Um, was baking brownies and, and she was giving them away to everyone. And we had this shocking amount of chocolate brownies, which, which were actually really good. So we we all had we, we had to eat them. I mean, it would have been cruel to just let them let them rot. It's and, very true. So, <laughs> but Chris, Chris, one day, and that I, mean, I, I was really I was really pissed off that that evening because he then ate all of them, and I was really craving craving chocolate brownies after a performance. And I went back to your apartment, and he was like, "Sorry, ate them all." <laughs> <laughs> I think I remember that night. Yeah. I don't think any of you slept. <laughs> it was a good summer. It was a long it summer. Was a good summer. It was a good summer. If I if I could have one kind of um, what you call this um, prerequisite for coming back next year, yeah. would be an apartment without carpet. <laughs> okay, that's pretty. Well, now we know which nice. apartments have carpet and which don't, so we'll just exactly. <laughs> Try to organize a little bit better. It's so or, oh my god! <laughs> I'll go get a tour before I, I do it. I just imagine the listeners of your podcast going, oh, "What are they talking about?" <laughs> oh no! I'm, I I take notes, and I've already attached the picture of you guys standing in front of the refrigerator, so they can get a nice visual. I'm now trying to uh, no, send myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Excellent! <laughs> Excellent! <laughs> So then something that's like completely different from, from this is you actually, I'm going to jump if you mind. Um, of course. Yeah. You also are very active as a conductor in Europe, especially. So I kind of want to like jump over to that. Cause for me, that's so different than kind of what we've been, I guess it's not really different because you conducted half of the stuff through your violin. Um, but I did want to talk about your what you do as the artistic director and conductor with is it Eroka Berlin? Eroka, uh, yeah. Eroka Berlin, and and you have multiple CDs out, a couple that have just come out this past month. So how? I just kind of want to talk about that and how that's how if is it similar to what working with big opera orchestra stress and how it is all the time in europe do you go from like orchestra to orchestra working or do you work with the same people as you travel this is actually more um more related to each other than one might think because if i'm playing the violin i'm mostly leading orchestras um with or without conductor um involved so mm -hmm. i'm always in this kind of um leading position where I where I um yeah where I generate energy to 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 make a band play basically and um this is not much different if you have an 80 piece orchestra in front of you or if you're leading a string quartet or or 
or 10 people or something like that. So it's pretty much the same way of um, including everyone and um, trying to <laughs> trying to make everyone feel at their best to make music happening. That's basically the main idea. Uh, and in more practical terms, I'm I'm traveling quite a lot these past months. It's been really intense, and I'm really home. Um, I'm, I'm I'm really happy about being home every second I can be home, um, because this is really where I have to recharge my my batteries. And it's it's different. I I work mostly on a regular basis with the groups I work with. For example, I'm I'm working with Eroica Berlin, which is my own group, which I I founded three and a half years ago um, to just work with people in Berlin, work with young musicians in Berlin and, and make my own thing, basically make my own my own little orchestra. And it doesn't happen um, as much as I wanted to because um, I often don't have the time to organize it and to find the funds and everything like that. I have a friend who's helping me with this, but I mean, two people cannot really, cannot really do everything. Um, yeah. Uh, but um and then i i have a regular working space in in belgium in in bruges um with an orchestra and i just come back from that this morning um also one of a period instrument orchestra and i am yeah i i like establishing those longer lasting working relationships because i think you can really make music well and 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 be at your best if you know the people around you and if you know what to expect from them and right now i'm in the middle of this very intense project with this orchestra in belgium which is called uh, anima eterna brugge and we are doing a chamber music program only eight people so that's uh, that's uh, the octet by by franz schubert which is one of the in my opinion uh, one of the best things ever written um and we have this uh, this intense period of of nine or ten concerts and and CD recording and everything. So that's pretty intense. And and um, but it's very rewarding if you go there and you know the people and you know the the working space. You know all the people in the office. You know um, even if I'm in if I'm in Bruges, I'm always in the same hotel. I'm always in the same room in the hotel. So it's 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 wow. also this kind of the this way of coming home. And this pretty much exists with which uh, with all the groups I'm working with. So, for example, there's also another group I work with on a regular basis in Australia, which is called the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra, which is also a bunch of nuts, just like Teatro Novo, um, and <laughs> which is which is fantastic because um, everyone is really involved, and and also the musicians do all the administration themselves, and so. Um, I I tend to always um, work with these idealistic groups that don't necessarily have the biggest amount of money, but the the greatest amount of of um, yeah of 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 Art. willingness to to <laughs> yeah willingness to to make great things happen, and so. Um, Whatever I do, if I'm whether I'm conducting or playing or or leading or whatever, I'm I'm looking for this for this close relation between playing and knowing each other and trusting each other and 
being able to to yeah to put the 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 piece and the the, the composer and the limelight and not yourself and and not your problems or or whatever is going on in your life right now but you have to present you have to present the the, the piece you want to perform in the in the best possible way and that's that's my that's my my chief aim and and with the groups I'm working now regularly um I have the impression that it works pretty well mm-hmm. and that's what 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 keeps me um what keeps me interested in what I'm doing we talked a bit about that with Tim a few weeks ago because um you know the the those of us who came from Belcanto at Caramore you know obviously Will and Lucy and uh, Rochelle had worked together for like 15, 20 years. And so they just have this relationship and they can communicate with each other. And there's so many things they just don't have to communicate because they know how each other work. Um, yeah. And with Derek and then Derek was a year before Tim. So Derek was there six years, Tim four, and then now or five and me four. You know, we all just, the relationship is there and is so strong that it makes it, mm-hmm. it made Teatro Nuevo so much easier this year. On top of the challenges yes. of a new program and a new location, there were things that we just didn't have to worry about because we just knew how each other worked. And so yeah. going back next year, I think, would make it, again, even easier because now we have you in the midst and ideally some of the same orchestra members coming back. So we would already have yes. this like working relationship, which yeah. is so much easier and just emotionally so much easier. Like, There's no way I think the five of us would have gotten through the summer if the five of us hadn't been together because... <laughs> It just would not have worked. We would have all like been crying in the corner somewhere. But... <laughs> all in your own rooms. Yeah, on the on the moldy Our... carpet. <laughs> <laughs> right. But just to have that relationship and uh, each of us there for each other and, you know, being able to like bang down Tim's door and be like, get out of bed, we're going to go to Chipotle, you know, was just like this <laughs> awesome experience to have. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 so, it's so important. It's so important because traveling somewhere new and meeting new people is great but traveling somewhere where we are which might be hours and hours and hours away but you go somewhere where you know the people and you know the spirit it it is this is actually what i like about this this traveling job it's not about having new faces every week but it's about having the same faces on a regular basis that's, that's what i like yeah in different locations absolutely yeah I think that was a big thing for most of our orchestra as well, because a lot of them had come from Juilliard and a lot of them yes. and a lot of them still, because now I'm friends with them on Facebook, you know, because a lot of them are Baroque instrument musicians, um, mm-hmm. they all knew each other. There was a few that didn't know each other or knew certain people and not other people, but all of them pretty much had a relationship together too. So Exactly, exactly. That also added to it. It was this it was this kind of um there was already a group feeling from the first day because everyone was like, Oh yeah, whatever, wherever we are, whatever we play, we, we know each other and we, we know how to deal with it. And that's and that's the that's that was actually really great. Yeah. That just I don't know why this reminded me of it, but there was one moment uh, during a performance, they all kind of go, went together. Um, so we had two kind of assistant concert masters, one for Augusta for for Tancredi and and yeah, sorry. 
and for Medea. I was like, what are the shows we just did? Yeah, one for Tunga. And Elena, Elena for, for Medea. And they would they switch back and forth. So every day they would switch back and forth. But there was this one thing. So as a calling stage manager, I was backstage and I didn't have, I had a, we set up a maestro cam, which was super difficult because there was no maestro. So then I had to like <laughs> focus it on both the piano, uh, whoever was playing the piano and on and Jakob. And then hope that the, the they didn't kick the camera and then I went out of focus and couldn't see you guys. But there was one moment <laughs> where all of a sudden, like, there was this weird commotion and I couldn't tell what was going on. And then super titles jumped on and we kept breaking strings or you guys kept breaking strings. And oh, middle. God, this is horrible. It's a one performance. I think yours went out first. And so, yeah. like, violins just kept getting passed down to different people until finally somebody got up and walked out of the orchestra pit into the hallway and like switched a string and like came back all in the middle of a performance and I couldn't see any of it being backstage and not having like a camera on everybody but um, this was literally this was so crazy because it was a g-string which broke and a g-string is normally the, the thickest string on a violin it just it just doesn't break it just never breaks but it broke twice in this single performance and not only me but also um one of the viola players she broke a c string which is again even thicker so it was it was just the, the, where you where you're sitting on your on your chair and you go like this is not happening this just doesn't this is not existing what happens here so um that was pretty cool but but also this whole group um this whole group action which which followed because then Augusta took my violin and and I got hers but then she had no g-string to change and then Elena put her g-string down and and attached it to my violin who was then played by Augusta which then got passed back to me and then of course Elena didn't have a g-string for the remainder of the act and I remember <laughs> that the next piece in the in the Tancredi was this march, you know, the march when the the, the wedding guests arrive, <laughs> and as it happens, most of this march is played on the on the G string, and she just didn't have one, and so she was just air violin playing the whole time, and we were just pissing ourselves with laughter, with 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 laughter. It was just the most hilarious thing. Um, yeah, this this happens once in a lifetime. I hope. <laughs> I know. I, I could do with. Afterwards, everybody was like, "This just—it just doesn't happen. That doesn't exist. I don't understand why this is happening." Yeah, exactly. Like, and I could—I could do it without it for the rest of my life. I have to say. <laughs> yeah, it's probably pretty stressful at the time trying to figure out what to do. Exactly, and also because, of course, it happened um, in the most quiet moment imaginable. And I mean, a breaking string makes a noise, and also attaching a string back to the violin makes some sort of noise and Tammy was just entering on stage singing her few her first few beautiful lines and I was like oh god this is horrible we are just destroying her entrance and then I was apologizing to her after the performance and she was like I didn't notice a thing <laughs> I was just so occupied with myself and and even Will who was sitting next to me he didn't notice a thing I yeah. was like I'm so sorry for, for what just happened and he was like what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just it. I think some people noticed and some people didn't, but I think because the relationship was so strong between everyone in that pit that it was just this like brainwave that went back and forth. 
Yeah. And things just were happening without making a big commotion out of it because nobody really had Absolutely. to communicate yeah. with each other. And so I didn't even hear about it until much later when I think super titles got on and they're like, what's going on in the pit? And I was like, I have no idea. I can't see anything. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> the, yeah, pit, was, the pit could have been flooded and you wouldn't know it. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have. I would have been like, I, I don't know. I hope they just keep playing. I, just, I still hear I mean, music. It's so good. Much, we had so much humidity in the pit. It could have been flooded without, without <laughs> us knowing it. But <laughs> Yeah. It was great times. I'm looking forward to next summer. No, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I So we only have, well, I only have, I mean, I have tons of questions, but I know we're getting close to the hour. So I have one more question. Uh, do you have any twin stories? Did yeah, you, you asked me about, you, you brought me about that and I was thinking about it, but I actually not really a twin story like um you explained it to me but a story which which is related to that because my name um is not super common but it happens that there is another person that has the same name as you um and for me that was was a quite a funny story because my email address my old email address was um, not the obvious choice you would do from a German provider. So the normal, the normal ending is is DE for for Germany. Yeah, mm-hmm. Kirsten has I that. I didn't have that. I had my name at then at provider dot net and not DE. And there was this poor guy who had the same like address as me and the same name, the same provider, but the ending DE. So for for some time, for like two years or something, he got all the emails that were addressed to me by people that were misspelling my email address. So every once in a while, I would get like, okay, here's another email for you. Um, I think this is meant for you. Um, I think you better get back to this person because it seems to be really urgent. Really hilarious because he was getting all these like concert related emails. And I think he was studying um, economics or something, so he could not, he, he, he did not know anything about music or something. So it must have been pretty, pretty outlandish for him to to get all these emails connected to. Okay, he is your next, uh, he, your next shipment of gut strings coming to you. Are you are you home tomorrow to pick up this parcel? <laughs> and um, but I, but because my ending, my my my, what you call the suffix. Is it the suffix in an email address? I don't know how address? you call it in, a, in an email address, the, but yeah. The, the country code or whatever, yeah. because that was not the obvious one in my email address. Um, he never got any emails. <laughs> I never got any email from him. From him. So, um, so, so he I, just... I could never really pay pay the pay the courtesy back. But um, <laughs> that that ended when I got the the other email address now. So so I don't. I don't get. I don't have this communication standing, but that's 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 the only thing I I have in terms of twin story. I don't know if it's really a twin story, but that, that's a pretty good one. I mean, yeah, I get, I get all the time. So I get emails. Twin uses my Amazon account, and so I'll get emails being like, "Your order of something or other has shipped," and I'm like, "Oh, probably not me. I don't. I didn't buy that." And she's like, "Thank you." <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. It's also it's also if you share a Netflix account, 
Uh-huh. I don't know how legal this this is. I don't know how if you are allowed to talk about this in public. But sometimes <laughs> you have friends that use your Netflix account. Yes. And um, at some point, I had the total number of three friends using my Netflix account. And I always tend to watch my my Netflix shows in English, but my friends prefer German. So I was starting uh, an episode. And then the next episode loaded and it was German again. And I was like, no, <laughs> I have to switch back to English. And then at some point, all the three, um, let's call them um, participants, um, <laughs> were watching. And I wanted to watch too. And I was sitting in front of my TV and I was opening Netflix. And then Netflix told me, you are locked in in too many devices at the same time. And then I said, okay, hang on, guys. <laughs> Can you just pay for your own account, please? <laughs> like i need to watch my shows that's funny I, and then, my husband and i share an account but that's about it so yeah but how much do you watch yeah Twin? and then you see not not a lot not a lot that's the thing not, yeah. and it and it went well for several months because i was not using it as much and then, but then you also see what your friends watch and i had this i have this friend who really likes to watch really dark um documentaries about second world war and stuff like that and then i had all these recommendations on my on my netflix account you could enjoy uh, the last days of hitler or something like that and i was like oh god no i don't want to watch this you're like i can't enjoy any of those things <laughs> i'm sure that's what my husband thinks too because i watch a whole bunch of when i watch netflix it was a whole bunch of like documentaries and like ridiculous things about the middle east and the history channel and all this stuff you know and my husband doesn't watch any of that stuff so when he gets on netflix and it would all pop up to all these like history documentary things and yeah <laughs> completely different yeah that's so what i do in yeah. my spare time i watch educational things it's a lot of fun yeah <laughs> well i know you should get going stacy has a christianing i should get to rehearsal in 32 minutes Yep, I okay. have a baptism to attend. Yeah, <laughs> baptism, that's what it was. I was like, you got something to do. But thank you so much. I'm so excited. Uh, it took us a while to, to schedule this, just so people can imagine. Like, I'm currently on Philadelphia East Coast time. Stacey's in California. And Jakob's in, well, now you're in Berlin. But when we were trying to schedule yeah. it, he was like, here's my schedule. And it was like an hour on this day and two hours on this day. He's like, but I'm in an Airbnb be on this day and on this day so it took us a while to like get all the time zones together and uh yeah and i'm pretty i'm pretty happy we could do it on this day because i'm home and the internet it's actually the first thing i'm doing on my new internet connection so guys ah. this is an honor <laughs> <laughs> yes thank you for sharing the experience with us <laughs> yeah it's working pretty well i have to say <laughs> yeah i think yeah. so that's awesome well, thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully, uh, we'll probably try to do this again next year, and we'll have part two of Teatro Novo and see how part two works. <laughs> see how you guys we, set we up could, the orchestra. We could pit. do a twin talk theater like live show in your apartment with Lucy and Chris and Tim and everyone. Like, um, oh man, oh, we should twin. Why didn't yeah. you? Like, pop, probably because you had no downtime. But next year podcasting just a normal evening <laughs> <laughs> of what goes on in our apartment between 11 30 and two o'clock in the morning <laughs> exactly a lot of chocolate brownie eating a uh, spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs>
a lot of random visits because everyone just decides to come over to our apartment. We were like the hangout place. And how often do you hear like as a stage manager, as a hangout place, but there was never a night that like the door wouldn't open and some random person would walk in and just sit down. And the vacuum cleaner robot. Don't forget the vacuum cleaner robot. Yeah, yeah. Who's okay, so stay tuned for Teatro Novo 2019. <laughs> <laughs> I like this it. We're planning ahead. <laughs> Thank you so much, Becca. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Have a, have a good one. Thank Thanks. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.